you know, those I think are the indicators of whether or not we're going to be able to kind of deny this spreading wildfire the oxygen that it needs to continue to spread. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. In the 10-year history of this podcast, it is rare to have episodes on the same topic in back-to-back weeks. But the unfolding crisis in Sudan is such an important topic that it demands sustained attention. Last week, I spoke with civil society activist Hala Al-Karib, who was trapped in her house in Khartoum as fighting erupted. She very much offered an informed local perspective on what was happening around her. Today, we are taking a global perspective on Sudan's incipient civil war with Cameron Hudson. He's a senior associate in the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a longtime Sudan policy hand in Washington, D.C. We kick off discussing why this conflict erupted when it did. We then spend a good deal of time discussing how and why this incipient civil war is very much an international affair with a number of countries in the region both taking part in and feeling the effects of this conflict. We also take a deep dive into the diplomatic failures that led us to this moment. At time of recording, the two warring parties, the paramilitary rapid support forces led by General Hamedti and Sudan's armed forces, the SAF led by General Burhan, had agreed to a 72-hour ceasefire announced by Anthony Blinken. However, that ceasefire appeared to be shaky at best, with reports of shelling and gunfire in Khartoum. Meanwhile, thousands of people are fleeing from Darfur in the west of Sudan to Chad and from Khartoum to the Egyptian border. This is shaping up to be one of the major crises of 2023, And this conversation will give you the context for better understanding why Sudan's civil war is very much an international affair. Now here is my conversation with Cameron Hudson of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So Cameron, you know, I've covered Sudan issues for almost 20 years, really since the outbreak of the conflict and the genocide in Darfur. And you've always been in the mix, either in government or in the think tank world. So I'm eager to get your analysis of why this conflict has broken out and more to the point, why did this happen now? I mean, I think you have to go back to what was happening in Darfur now nearly 20 years ago, to understand. The Sudan Armed Forces, deployed by President Bashir at the time to put down that rebellion in Darfur, was outmatched at the time by Darfuri rebels. And so it organized and enlisted the help 
of Arab militia tribes on the ground already in Darfur, organized by the military intelligence and the intelligence services of the Bashir regime to essentially carry out a highly mobile scorched earth campaign on behalf of the government of Sudan. That Janjaweed militia over time morphed into what is now the rapid support forces. And this was all part of a strategy by the Bashir government to essentially coup-proof his regime, which is to say having a variety of competing security services under him so that he could pacify the population, but at the same time prevent any one security service from becoming dominant and possibly presenting a threat to his hold on power. So basically, the RSF was a counterweight to the Sudanese army in the event that the army might want to topple him in a coup. Well, it was both a counterweight and a complement, I would say, because this gets into sort of the tactics that we're seeing in the conflict going on right now. The SAF is what you would consider to be a kind of conventional army. It has an air force. It has heavy weapons, artillery, tanks. It's rather slow. It's lumbering. It is not particularly mobile. And so they needed a counterweight to that, not only politically, but also to respond to the threats in Darfur, where rebels were essentially carrying out a kind of guerrilla-style campaign. So the RSF emerged and filled a very tactical weakness that the SAF had, which was it was highly mobile. It fought using almost the same kind of guerrilla tactics as those rebel groups. And so today, we are seeing those differences play out on the battlefield between these two forces. If the roots of this conflict are 20 years old in the government response to the Darfur insurgency, why are we seeing the outbreak of conflict today? I take it, of course, that Sudan has had a difficult democratic transition and that these two men, Hedmeti and Burhan, have been rivals for some time. But why was it in April of 2023 that we saw fighting on the streets of Khartoum and elsewhere? Well, again, we have to go back a little bit in history to kind of unpack that one. You know, the fact of the matter is that there is no real love lost between these two institutions. Leaving aside the personalities of the generals, the SAF considers itself a professional army, uh, even though I think we in the West would look at it as having a very checkered past with a lot of blood on its hands from its response in Darfur and in South Sudan, they consider themselves a professional army. They have a military training academy. Many of their leadership have been trained in Egypt's military academy. They go on joint operations with other countries. So they really pride themselves on being the country's elite and having a constitutional role to protect the state. Now, of course, they've taken that to lengths that I don't think we would agree with. They have been part and parcel of military governments going back many generations in Sudan. But nonetheless, they consider themselves to be constitutional officers of the state. And they look at the RSF essentially as a militant group, as a mercenary army. And so culturally, these are very, very different groups that don't have a lot of love for each other. But what I would say is during the period of popular uprising in Sudan in 2018 and 2019, when there was mounting pressure on the regime to change course and to remove 
President Bashir from office, I think they entered into a kind of marriage of convenience, whereby they read the writing on the wall. They saw the hundreds of thousands of people gathering in the streets every single day to protest for change. And they worked jointly, Burhan and Hemeti, to remove President Bashir from power, thinking that was going to be sufficient to take the energy out of the protest movement. But it wasn't. And they were forced yet again to compromise with civilians and form a civilian transitional government. However, in that government, they maintained their power for themselves. They kept civilian powers and powers over the security services very separate under that regime. And so during that period, too, the SAF and the RSF had a kind of common threat which was the civilian government and the potential for real constitutional change in the country. And so during that time, too, they were kind of in bed together, facing this common threat of reform from civilians. They joined together again to overthrow the civilian government in October of 2021, when I think they shared a fear that they would face reforms that they were not prepared to uh, submit to. The real pressure, the real tension has been building since that coup. Because without having a shared threat or a shared enemy, or in the case of Bashir, someone over them to adjudicate differences between them, these two leaders have been face-to-face vying for power and vying for control over the future of the country. And so this has really been, I think, the slow-burning fuse that has been burning since the October 21 coup that has put these two on this collision course today. So in December of last year, the sides once again entered a kind of loose framework agreement to transition back to civilian rule. And they came under heavy diplomatic pressure to do so, particularly by the Quad, which is the US, the United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. And these four countries kind of worked together in the sort of international contact group to support once again the re-transition back to democracy in Sudan. To what extent do you consider the outbreak of fighting today a result of failure of international diplomacy? Well, I think we can point a lot of fingers, again, going back to 2019. I think the failure of international diplomacy led by Washington, quite frankly, is a failure to not put pressure on these parties when it was most deserving and most justified, and to believe what they were telling us. And I think there's sort of two ways to unpack this. These two leaders, Burhan and Hemeti, have allowed themselves to become legitimate political actors. They've been working hard through their own kind of propaganda machines to paint a portrait of themselves as working in the interests of the Sudanese civilians, working in the interests of democracy and civilian rule, even though there's there's really no evidence on the ground that they actually believe any of that or intend to bring about those outcomes. That's the message that they've been sending out there. We had an opportunity in Washington and with others to sanction the RSF when they, in June of 2019, broke up a civilian sit-in movement that was gathered around the military headquarters, putting pressure not only for them to get rid of Bashir, but to get rid of themselves and to allow a civilian government to come in. The RSF broke that up, killing several hundred people, dumping their bodies in the Nile, and Washington chose not to sanction the RSF for those actions. 
Why? Why do you think at the time Washington did not sanction RSF for that massacre of civilians in Khartoum who were peacefully protesting? Because shortly after that, I think the RSF calculated that it had overstepped and gone too far, and they immediately entered into political talks to allow for a civilian government to come in. And so by August, just about you know a month and a half after that incident, Prime Minister Hamdok was coming into office. He was the new civilian prime minister. And so there was very little time to impose those sanctions. The sanctions had not been kind of prepared ahead of time. And so when we should have imposed them, we didn't. And then they were already making amends by the time I think we had our kind of ducks in a row to do it. So that was, I think, the first missed opportunity that has allowed Hemeti ever since to continue to reinvent himself. I think the second opportunity was when they both overthrew the civilian government. We had spent hundreds of millions of dollars in support of that civilian government. International donors had pledged nearly $2 billion. We had put Sudan on a debt relief path, all predicated on a civilian government being in place. And so when they overthrew that civilian government, yet again, we had an opportunity to sanction the military and the RSF for undermining the transition to civilian rule. And yet again, we chose not to sanction any of them, again, believing that we could engage them in political talks, again, believing what they were telling us, which was they undertook this coup for the good of the revolution because the political class to whom power was supposed to be turned over in elections were corrupt and were not acting in the best interests of the country. We accepted those responses and allowed them essentially to act with impunity. And so time and time again, when they have committed these transgressions against their own people and and against kind of U.S. policy and international interests, we have allowed them to do it and we have not done anything to essentially take them off of the political stage. And I think that sanctions would have delegitimized both of these leaders and it would have prevented them from trying to reinvent themselves as we have seen. And so this has been a pattern of behavior from the West for a long time. So these missteps by Washington and other Western capitals led to the conflict we're seeing today, or at least didn't stop this spiral into conflict. Going forward, what would you recommend or how might Washington approach this situation to encourage de-escalation? The challenge here is, of course, that I think we don't know what de-escalation looks like in a world where these two leaders are still in power. I think it's become impossible to imagine a scenario where we are in political talks, there is a de-escalation, and we begin to talk again about a return to civilian rule, as long as either of these two leaders are in charge of either of these two institutions. I happen to think it's going to take a victory of one side on the battlefield for us to figure out how to move forward in Sudan. And frankly, too, I mean, that's why we're in this position. We're in this position because at the end of the day, two weeks ago, these two leaders couldn't figure out what security sector reform would look like and and how they would implement it. And so what they're doing is implementing security sector reform on the battlefield, which is to say they're fighting to the death to remove one of these security actors from the equation. And then we will end up having to reform whatever is left of not only Sudan's security service, but what's left of Sudan. And I think that's the problem here. So if the option now is to let these 
two groups, these two militaries just fight it out, which sounds awful. You have the situation where Egypt is supportive of one side of the Sudanese armed forces, and you have the RSF, at least in the past, has been supported by Saudi Arabia and the UAE and has these kind of shadowy ties to the Wagner group. Do you expect that foreign governments will kind of add fuel to the fire and and support their team in this fight? Absolutely. I think that the longer this fight goes on, the greater the likelihood that you see outside states and outside actors involved in this conflict, which will obviously add to the death toll. It will widen and prolong the conflict in ways that we frankly can't predict, and it will weaken a very unstable region already. I mean, if you look at the map of, of the Horn of Africa, Sudan borders countries that are either recently coming out of war themselves or in some version of internal rebellion, whether that's Libya or Ethiopia or Chad or the Central African Republic or South Sudan. These are highly fragile states that Sudan borders, all of which have rebel forces or militia groups that are very willing, it seems, to join the fight, especially if it means a paycheck. And so we are already hearing reports that the RSF under Hameti is trying to recruit some of these forces from varying countries around the region. You would expect Egypt is already playing a role, but you would expect that other countries could also join in, especially if they see it as an opportunity to go after some of their own internal rebels who might now be involved in this conflict. So you can imagine a scenario where this fight is not limited to one or two countries, but involves six countries in the region and their rebel groups all participating, it would be a catastrophic outcome for the country, for the region, and for our own national interests. It just seems that is the outcome that this situation is trending towards at the moment. You know, in the weeks since the fighting broke out, it has only escalated. And we have seen it, as you said, indications that these various like rebel groups that have so far not joined in may start to pick a side that this may spread regionally. Is there anything that can be done in this short window to prevent that worst case scenario from happening? First, we can try to prevent those regional states from becoming any more involved. We can ask countries to close their borders. We can ask countries to be responsible to prevent rebel groups or militant groups from crossing in and joining the fight. That can be done through a diplomatic coalition. We can use our leverage with countries like Egypt, like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates to get them to pressure the warring parties to find some kind of mediated solution. We can think creatively ourselves about exit strategies for one side or the other or both sides, quite frankly, to get them out of the country, to provide them an exit so that we can try to imagine a new future for the country. And I think the last thing, which I understand is already on the table, is moving forward with a set of sanctions for senior leadership in both the SAF and the RSF from Washington to put the leadership of those organizations on notice that they will also be sanctioned and their financial interests also seized if they do not relent in this fight. So there's a couple of things I think out there on the table right now. So we have seen some diplomacy in the region and from the African Union seeking to head off this worst case scenario. 
I'm curious to learn, though, what you see as the dynamics at the Security Council around this conflict. You know, if sanctions are to be maximally impactful, they would be not just U.S. sanctions, but international sanctions uh, approved by the Security Council. So we know that China and Russia and the United States in particular have long histories in Sudan. Where do you see them coming out on this conflict and how are they thus far approaching the outbreak of this conflict? Well, the UN Security Council has met once to discuss this and issued a press statement that was a unanimous statement that was fairly strong on the parties calling for a, a ceasefire and for them to protect civilians. So I think that at least right now, there is a fairly widely shared sense that the risk of an escalation and a regionalization of this conflict is in no one's interests. And so even China and Russia, I think, fear what an uncontrolled situation in Sudan could look like. At the same time, I think there are groups like Wagner, which we know operates at the behest of the Russian government, who see opportunities in all of this. And there may be other regional states that see opportunities in all of this. But I think for the time being, there does seem to be a consensus right now that both sides should try to find a solution, at least in the short term, to end fighting. Again, as we talk, the potential for civilian casualties is very high. A good portion of the capital, Khartoum, is on the move right now, seeking safe havens somewhere else, either in the country or outside the country. So right now, I think the focus has been on protecting civilians who are caught in the crossfire of these two warring sides, getting international diplomats out of the way, and now creating corridors for people to escape. I think once we have a better handle on that crisis situation, I think we'll see more diplomacy focused on how we solve this and how we resolve this in the long run. I see. So thus far, the diplomatic action has all been, how can we figure out how to get our people out and how can we do what we can to minimize harm to civilians during this crisis. But as this enters that sort of next phase, both on the battlefields and diplomatically, are there any indicators you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you how the conflict dynamics in particular may evolve in the coming days and weeks and months, particularly in Khartoum? I mean, this is a city that hasn't seen a battle in like a hundred years, yet it's like, ground zero for this horrible civil war. What are you looking towards in Khartoum in particular that will suggest to you how this will unfold in the coming days and weeks? Well, I think we're on the precipice of finding that out because as the city empties of its people, and certainly as it empties of international staff, there is nothing that will be left to control either of the sides. So does Khartoum end up looking like Idlib or Grozny or, you know, some of the other kind of notoriously destroyed cities caught in these civil conflicts. I don't know. There doesn't seem to be any check on either of these forces right now. There doesn't seem to be any break on their efforts to destroy the other or on the tactics that they're using. I mean, again, the, the Sudan Armed Forces, they're using their air force. They're bombing their own capital city. So whatever kind of gains that they hope to make from that, it has to be seen as pyrrhic. You're destroying your own capital city in order to rout out this militant army now. It seems like there's nothing that is stopping either of them 
from really using the worst tactics in this conflict. So I think one of the things I'm looking for is, will they continue to press ahead with those same tactics? Will other countries join in? Will other forces join in? Will new weapons be introduced into this fight? You know, those I think are the indicators of whether or not we're going to be able to kind of deny this spreading wildfire, the oxygen that it needs to continue to spread. And I think that should be the sort of the diplomatic focus right now is denying those inputs, those inputs of weapons and materiel and fighters from outside the country to be the, either the difference maker or to be the kindling that this needs to continue to spread. So I've covered Sudan for like 20 years. You've been a diplomat and a think tanker covering Sudan for 20 years. I think you and I kind of intuitively have a sense of just how catastrophic this can get. I fear, though, that policymakers' attention in the West and in the United States might sort of wane and shift and ebb. How do you convince policymakers, particularly in Washington, but elsewhere in the West, that what is happening here matters deeply and could have just profound international implications? I think part of the challenge with that is that there is a certain amount of Sudan fatigue. As you have said, we've all worked on this for 20 plus years. We have been there trying to build peace in Sudan since we appointed our very first Sudan envoy in 2001. So Sudan has left an indelible mark on U.S. diplomacy in that period of time. And there's certainly, I think, a real sense of fatigue, a real sense of exhaustion For those of us who are working on this and who have worked on it, it does feel like Groundhog Day in some respects, that we've been down this road before. I think the problem is, because we have such turnover in staff, the people who we have working on these things now, they weren't there in the CPA days or in the Darfur days. And so the tactics that the military is using now are new to them, but they're not new to those of us who have been working on this for that amount of time. I think we should have never been listening to or putting faith in the words of these military leaders because they have shown us time and again that they're willing to sign their name to any document and they're willing to agree to any political agreement if it means avoiding pressure that day, if it means avoiding giving up power tomorrow. These conversations that they have with us are tactical shifts, but they're not strategic changes in who they are or how they operate. And so that's what's, I think, disappointing to me is I feel a little bit like Charlie Brown with the football, where we just keep falling for the same set of actors and actions all the time. Cameron, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. 
please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>